Welcome to the Wealth Standard Podcast with host Patrick Donahoe, author of the best-selling personal finance book, Heads I Win, Tales You Lose, and one of the nation's most influential financial advisors. The Wealth Standard's focus this season is investing. 2020 opened with markets and asset prices at all-time highs, but many of us experience more financial uncertainty now than we did a decade ago. Although there are more choices and opportunities than ever before, the risk-to-reward ratio teeters on a global fulcrum, contributing to the roller coaster of emotions surrounding financial well-being. It seems like everyone is walking on eggshells. This season, we'll cover topics revolving around investment theory and strategy, atypical investments versus conventional investments, and the role of investing within personal wealth strategies. The Wealth Standard Podcast is committed to inspiring you to be more financially free. There is no better time to gain clarity about your wealth strategy, your investments, and your financial future than now. Hi, everyone. This is Patrick Donahoe. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Wealth Standard Podcast. I'm really excited for you guys to listen to this, this interview with a good friend of mine, Russell Gray. Russell is one of the real estate guys the Real Estate Guys Radio is a radio show and podcast that is, I believe, still the longest running real estate investment podcast out there. They've been on air since 1997. I got to know Russell back in 2010. I was invited to be a faculty member on the Investor Summit at Sea, which is a more than a week long cruise where investors from all over the world get together and, uh, and learn together. It's a very interesting dynamic. But I was a faculty member there for nine years. And there were other, I would say, famous speakers as well. Robert Kiyosaki has gone on there multiple times. G. Edward Griffin, Peter Schiff, Doug Duncan, who's the chief economist of Fannie Mae, Chris Martinson, and countless others. There are some experiences that I had there that changed my life. And so I did record podcasts when I was on the cruise. And so I'm going to make sure I link to those in the show notes. So check those out at thewellstandard.com. Uh, just the links to the podcast episodes I did while I was on the cruise ship on the Real Estate Guys Investor Summit at Sea. I'm going to cut to the interview. Before that, thank you for guys for the, the support, comments, questions, likes, shares. It's been awesome. We've had definitely a tick up in awareness of the podcast and the subsequent episodes in the last couple of months. So thank you guys for that. And we're pretty active on Instagram, active on Facebook. So make sure you're following us there as well as a subscriber to the email list. We're actively sending on messages there. I head over to thewellstandard.com, the resource section that I've spoken about in the last couple of months, specifically a program that Mike Dillard has for entrepreneurs. That's all live. And so you guys can check that out at the resource section at thewellstandard.com. And then finally, at the end of the interview, I'm going to do some Q&A as well as some commentary based on the kind of crazy events that are going on right now. But I didn't want to spend time on that now. I'm going to cut to the interview. Hope you guys enjoy that. And then for those of you who would like to, to stick around to the end, I will do uh, some commentary and Q&A then. Thanks again, guys, for the support. And I hope you enjoy the interview today with my good friend, Russell Gray. Everyone, welcome to this interview with an incredible guest. And he's no stranger to the podcast, uh, as well as other mentions in different writing, blogs, newsletters. He's a good friend of mine. His name is Russell Gray. He's mentored me, Russ. I think it's been 10 years now, over 10 years. Yeah, Quite we met believe. each other in the wake of the uh, 2008 crisis. We were both kind of in rebuild mode. And I think through those experiences of seeing how you know the Real Estate Guys radio t took off, how you guys have expanded your network to all sorts of ends, it's been so impressive. But I really appreciate and I'm grateful for the mentorship you've provided uh, me for so many years. And I'm really excited today to extract out of you some of your insights into what's going on with this new world, new economy. Obviously, we're in the thick of it. At the same time, I think there are some signals that would lead us to you know, potential conclusions. So I'm really grateful for your time and grateful for your expertise. And I would also say that the realestateguysradio.com is an incredible resource. Subscribe to their podcast. And also, Russ writes personally a newsletter that is so well-written, so full of good insights. His mind really took off after 2008, 2009, in my opinion. And he became just an incredible writer. So Russ, that being said, I welcome you to this interview. And again, thank you for your time. 
Yeah, no, thank you, Patrick. It's great to be here. Let me just make one quick correction. It's realestateguysradio.com, realestateguysradio.com. And they can decide after they've heard me ramble here a little bit if they think I'm worth somebody they want to listen to more. But let's get into it. I'm excited to be here. Well, you know, Russ, I think right now the consensus of our audience is, you know, on edge in a sense, where things have been disrupted in all sectors and we've been hit with a kind of a black swan that no one really anticipated, especially the response of, you know, the government to it, which I believe is a big earthquake that's going to have some ripple effects. So, first off, because we haven't connected in a while, how are you processing the last couple of months when it comes to the economy and your role in providing guidance and insight and wisdom to a pretty broad audience? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think to really understand the answer, I'm going to tell a little bit of a story. So back in 2008, it's no secret. Going into 2008, I was in the mortgage business. I had accumulated a lot of properties kind of all over the place. I was levered to the hilt, but I had great cash flow from my mortgage business. And I was in the hottest industry at the hottest time. So I looked like a genius. And then all of a sudden, you know, what happens is life hands you a bunch of humility. What I realized is that I was only structured for sunshine. And when the mortgage industry imploded, it took my income with it, which was supporting this huge portfolio of over-leveraged properties that were, in many cases, sitting empty. I was really speculating on real estate asset prices instead of really focusing on investing for the production of income. Uh, which seemed kind of boring at the time because equity was easy money. And I still believe in equity, but equity is a byproduct of cash flow, not just rampant speculation. So there is a difference. I didn't understand that back then. So coming out of that, I dedicated myself to understanding how could a guy like me that is relatively attentive, studious, not see such a disaster coming when I was in the epicenter of it, And the net result of it was I had my nose just too close to the grindstone. I was myopic. And so we went out on a search and we started looking for people who had, you know, accurately predicted what had happened and got it right for the right reasons. And one of those people was Peter Schiff, who we become friends with. And he's always been a part of our Investor Summit at Sea for the last since 2013. And Peter was a guy who kind of began that process of explaining. Of course, I'd already read G. Edward Griffin's book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, somebody else that we're mutual friends with and whose book that we've read and it changed our lives. And I began to understand the way the financial system operated and what it meant you know, on a human level. And that's one thing to understand is just kind of how the system operates. And you may not like it, you may not think it's just, or you might think it's great. But at the end of the day, it doesn't care what you think of it. It's going to behave the way it's going to behave. And sometimes we have to set aside our political or economic proclivities and just accept it for what it is and try to navigate it. So when this thing hit, part of that 2008 recovery process was building out our network of smart people that we were around. Robert and I were always normally among the smartest people in the rooms that we were in going up to 2008. After 2008, we made it our mission to be the lowest guys on the totem pole, to be around people much smarter, much better connected, much wiser, much more experienced, much more articulate than we were. And of course, that caused us a lot of growth. Two of those guys were Chris Martinson and Adam Taggart at Peak Prosperity. And they were at the forefront of understanding how bad this coronavirus crisis was going to become. And I was on the phone with Adam, and Adam told me, And so I kind of started to pay attention, but I was less concerned about the health crisis component of it. I was more concerned about the economic crisis component. And what I was really interested in was the chain of events. So you asked me the question, how did I process it? I'm a big believer that before you can process a lot of content, there's a lot of noise, a lot of information, a lot of opinions, people coming at you from all angles right now. I needed to set a context. And the context for me is looking at what happened. I said, okay, the health crisis is going to create an economic crisis, not because of the health crisis itself, but because of the reaction or arguably the overreaction to it. But again, whether you think they were handling it responsibly or whether they went way over the top or they're not doing enough, it doesn't matter what you think. They're doing what they're doing. 
and it effectively has shut down the economy. So it went from health crisis to economic crisis. What is an economic crisis? It's a cessation of commerce. And that means no revenue to businesses, no paychecks to employees. Well, what does that mean? It means that debts can't be serviced. So it goes from being an economic crisis, it has the potential, and I think arguably is going to metastasize, if you will, or spread into a financial system crisis where it threatens both the banks and the bond markets. And so the Fed, anticipation of that, is printing money like nobody's business right now, trying to prop up the lack of economic activity. It's like having a heart attack and your blood stops pumping by injecting a lot more liquidity, which is basically like giving somebody who's had a heart attack a transfusion and hoping the pressure alone will force the heart to start to beat. It's not going to happen. So the financial markets are in trouble. And that's what triggered the 2008 crisis. So the job loss of 2008 was a byproduct of the collapse of credit markets, which caused a cessation of commerce. Here, the job market, which was the cessation of commerce, created the financial crisis or is going to create the financial crisis, in my opinion. And then that then will reinforce the economic. And in order to prevent this crack, which what Peter Schiff calls the real crash, which is going to be potentially epically much bigger than 2008, the Fed is approaching it by printing trillions and trillions of dollars at a rate that is just so unprecedented, it's not even funny. The question in my mind then is, can the dollar survive all of the pressure that is being put on it to prop up the system? And I don't know the answer to that, but that's what I'm paying attention to. So the context for me is understanding from health crisis to economic crisis to financial system crisis to dollar crisis, how do I see that coming? And how do I position myself to not just survive it, but thrive? Because in the flip side of all chaos is going to be opportunity. This is awesome. I think you established really some good bullet points that we can address in a little bit more detail. So let me unpack the first idea, which I think is very important to identify, which is the system is going to operate the way it's going to operate. As much as we think that things should be this way or should be that way, the economy, society it is what it is. And there's only so much you can influence. And back in 2008, 2009, whether things should have been set up a different way or shouldn't have, it's besides the point. It really comes down to what are you going to do with what just happened? There's a very similar environment where there's a lot happening that's outside of your control. And there is a lot that maybe could have been done to prevent it or should have been done whether it's from a health standpoint or an economic standpoint, but that's beside the point. It happened. You don't really have any influence over it. What are you going to do now? And then you led to, okay, what happened was people stopped, period. School, work, spending, the list goes on. And the economy is based on spending. Okay, businesses need money and revenue from spending to pay their bills, to pay their taxes, to pay their employees. And so that disruption has created an assess or a void, I would say, of capital enough to pay bills, service debts. And so the Federal Reserve has stepped in and it's been around the world too. Central banks have filled that void. And because they filled that void, things are kind of continuing on and hopefully things open up and so forth. At the same time, there are some fundamentals in that that I don't think most people are aware of. Because as we look at leadership and how we're, I would say, how we're schooled, our education system is to teach us that there are those that are smarter than us that we should listen to. And, and right now, I believe that there are a lot of why, you know, supposedly wise people at the head making certain decisions that, we, that most people are just following. So maybe let's talk about the unintended consequences or what could potentially happen because... The void is being filled with, I would say, artificial money, artificial resources. Yeah. So, you know, you talked about unintended consequences. You could leave off intended or unintended because it doesn't really matter. You know, it's just really, (laughs) it's consequences. It's cause and effect. When I think about the financial system, I think of the old game I played when I was a little kid called Mousetrap. And in Mousetrap, you know, a chain of events would happen. You'd put the little marble in the chute and it would go down and it would, the 
boot that would kick the thing and another marble would go. Anyway, it went through this whole convoluted process, cause and effect, until ultimately the trap came down on the mouse. And when I look at the economy, it's kind of that way. And so one of the things that I spent a lot of time doing was understanding the way the system really worked. And so I could begin to anticipate when I saw a trigger event, I could follow it up through the chain and have more advanced notice on what I thought was coming. So way before the coronavirus crisis happened, and I go back to my friendship with Chris Martinson and Adam Taggart, back in September of last year, in my daily perusal of the news, looking for what I call clues in the news, I saw this thing happening in the repo market. I wasn't really that familiar with the repo market, but I saw that the Fed was injecting hundreds of billions of dollars into this thing called the repo market. And I said, you know what? I don't know what's going on under the hood, but there's a heck of a lot of smoke coming out. You know, something's going on down there. So I did a little homework on it and, you know, kind of keep it in layman's terms. In short, the repo market is like a pawn shop for banks to take their treasuries, which are their assets, like you hawking a watch or a piece of jewelry when you're short on cash, and they show up at the repo market, they give the the pawnbroker the treasury and they walk away with their cash. They go put their cash fire out and then they come back and they buy back their assets. So they don't have to give the asset up. They don't have to write it off on their financials, which is really what that's all about, is doctoring their financials so that their insolvency can be hidden. And we could talk about mark-to-market and all kinds of things that they change in order to hide. There's so many things in the accounting system they use to hide the weaknesses in the financial system. So you really don't really know what's going on. But if you watch for these clues... So anyway, so that happened. So we called Chris and Adam up and said, Hey, guys, I don't know what this means. And he said, well, we don't know what this means either, but there's clearly something wrong. So there was a cash problem brewing. There was a banking problem brewing in September, way in advance of this. So, you know, my antenna was up at that point and we wrote a few newsletters and talked about it and did a couple of shows on it. You know, again, not being experts on it, but just encouraging people to pay attention to it. So it kind of started there. The other thing too is after going through kind of reverse engineering the implosion of the 2008 financial crisis, one of the things that I became aware of was hypothecation of bonds and really what derivatives were. You know, Warren Buffett famously wrote in his Berkshire Hathaway letter to his investors that he considered derivatives to be weapons of mass financial destruction. And this was, you know, I think back in the late 90s. So it was very prescient. With that said, you know, what does that mean? Well, basically what it means is that People who are speculating in the bond markets, and the bond market is the largest market, except maybe the currency market, but the bond market is ginormous and much bigger than the stock market. And everybody pays attention to the stock market. Very few people pay attention to the bond market unless you're kind of a financial geek. But in the bond market, prices of the bonds, the value of the bond is inversely correlated to the yield on the bond. So if I want to drive interest rates down, if I'm the Fed, then I'm going to bid up the price of the bond. For real estate investors, that's like bidding up the price of an income property lowers the capitalization rate. It lowers the the yield on your investment. So it's the same concept. So when you understand that people don't buy bonds for the yields because the yields are non-existent, in some cases worldwide, they're negative. Why would anybody buy that? They're speculating on the bond price. And because they know that the central banks are committed to driving interest rates down, They're basically front-running the central banks, knowing if I can go buy a bond before a Federal Reserve bond-buying program, then I can turn right around and flip it to the Fed at a profit. And so you say, well, why would the Fed continue to push interest rates down? It is much bigger than simply stimulating the economy, making it easy for already impoverished borrowers to borrow more. It's more than just about making money available to corporations to do stock buyback programs so that they can goose the stock market. It's even greater than trying to just simply supply an overspending federal government with gobs of money so that they can buy votes and pay for programs and do you know whatever legitimate activities that they do. You know, at the end of the day, they are holding together the financial system and here's how that works. If I have a bond on my balance sheet and it's my asset 
Now, if you're the bond issuer, it's your liability. It's the same relationship people have with their banks, right? If you have a bank account, it's your asset on your balance sheet. But to the bank, it's their liability. They owe you the money. That gives you something called counterparty risk, which is rife in this system. So anyway, so you've got this asset on your balance sheet and you decide you need some liquidity. Whether you go to the repo market or anywhere else, you can borrow against that. And when you borrow against it, you do it using something called margin. And so now I've borrowed against that bond on margin the way you could on your stock portfolio. The problem you have is if the bond price goes down, and why would it go down if interest rates go up? Now you get a margin call. Well, a margin call means that you either have to post more cash, which means you now have a cash crisis, or you're going to sell the bond at the loss, take the loss on your balance sheet and show your insolvency. So now you've got to find a way to raise cash. The repo market is a place that you can go do that. And so that activity in the repo market was like a warning sign, a canary in a coal mine, if you will, that there were things going on in the bond market. So the Fed is really obligated to try to continually keep interest rates suppressed in order to prop up the bond markets, or they get a repeat of 2008. The difference is the amount of bonds, the amount of debt, and the amount of derivatives in the system today dwarfs what we had in 2008. So therefore, the impact of losing control of that would dwarf the impact that we felt in 2008. I don't have any way of knowing this for sure, but I suspect a lot of what's going on is trying to figure out how to keep the bond market going. Because when they tried to raise interest rates, you know, Peter Schiff predicted this, he goes, they're not going to be able to do it. They're in the monetary Roche Motel is what Peter calls it. They're not going to be able to do it. And so I think the good news is, you know, especially for real estate investors, it means you're going to be in an environment of very low interest rates for the foreseeable future. And so you need to be able to use debt to make money. And that's a whole investment strategy in and of itself. It means that if you're a saver, if you're investing in hoping to get a yield on your savings, you're probably going to end up being a loser. It's why Robert Kiyosaki says savers are losers. So there's a lot there. But I think that the main concept to understand is pay attention to the bond market, understand the inverse relationship between interest rates and bond prices and the pressure on the Fed in many areas, but most especially in propping up the financial system. It's got to keep those bond prices down or bond yields down to keep the bond prices up. And they have to print money to to do it. And so there's, once again, a lot of pressure on the dollar. You know, and this is a worldwide phenomenon. What's going on isn't just the United States, United States problem. Maybe show some of the reactions and that impact on real estate in general. So right now, the reaction, it's the only tool that the governments have, which is to continue to push money into the system. Right now, it's going to, you know, in the form of stimulus checks to people, right? So they can pay their bills. I think that's going to most likely going to continue with multiple stimuluses likely. If that's the case, interest rates are going to stay low, as you mentioned. At the same time, between, you know, mid February, March, maybe right now, maybe going into the summer, the disruption has really caused many businesses. To struggle as well as people, and that impacts whether it's rents, mortgage, mortgage payments. So right now, maybe speak to how the disruption it has caused some challenge when it comes to people being able to service debt or to pay landlords, which ultimately is going to impact real estate prices and create potentially some opportunities, but also maybe some reshuffling of resources where some real estate may not be as valuable as it once was given the disruption. Yeah, well, there's a ton there. When most people think of real estate, especially people who aren't in real estate, you know, as investing, they just think about houses, maybe apartment buildings. And that's probably the easiest thing to talk about to start with. But obviously, there's retail was already in huge trouble with kind of the Amazon effect and things going on there. It was a boon to industrial with warehouses and distribution centers and markets that supported that. So there's always winners. There's always losers. There's shifts sometimes. So when you look at residential, residential is a great place to be because people will always need a roof over their head. And so either they're going to own the property or someone else is going to own the property. And as people get poorer, the probability is that someone else is going to own the property who's less poor and going to have some mechanism by which to generate income, getting a share of that worker's productivity. 
So rental real estate, income producing real estate, residential real estate, all is really predicated on jobs. You know, I had a chance to interview Donald Trump, only got a chance to ask him one question when he was running for president. We were at Freedom Fest and I asked him, you know, Mr. Trump, a lot of people look at what happened in 2008 and the financial crisis, lay that at the foot of the Fed and monetary policy and government policy. What does a healthy housing market look like in a Trump administration? He gave me a one word answer, jobs. And then, of course, when he got into office, that was what his emphasis was, was jobs. That was his big claim to fame was jobs. I'm going to bring jobs back, bring manufacturing back to America. Jobs, 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 every rally, jobs, jobs, jobs. Well, we just lost 30 plus million jobs. And to your point, some of those are never going to come back. Human behavior has altered permanently. People have discovered they can work at home. If I can work at home, why do I want to pay $5,000 a month for a you know 400 square foot apartment in New York City if I can go live in Central Florida in a nice house in the beach in the sunny weather and do the same job. So I think there's going to be markets that are winners and losers. There's going to be people that are going to be winners and losers, landlords that are going to be winners and losers. And so one thing about real estate is it's not an asset class. It's not a commodity. It's not like gold or currency or oil where there's one price for the same product universally around the world. Every property, every neighborhood, every ownership, every financial structure is unique. Because of that inherent inefficiency and uniqueness, real estate is a lot more art than it is science. And that's what makes it so fun. So there's going to be gobs of opportunity, but it's there's also going to be problems. And it's all going to be predicated on the disruption of income. Right now, we have enhanced unemployment. We have helicopter money, direct infusions of cash, although you'd make the argument it, it's not much. You have the Paycheck Protection Program, which is designed to keep people employed and cash flowing in that regard. Forgivable loans and all the bad debt now with Fed stepping in, buying local bonds, muni bonds, ETFs, in addition to treasuries and probably a whole lot of other things they've been buying anyway through proxies behind the scenes, propping up the stock market, mostly for optics, because a lot of people look at the stock market as a proxy for the economy. Oh, the stock market isn't so bad, therefore the economy's not so bad. That's not true, but that's That's the way people feel and people in power understand how to manipulate the optics to create the scenarios they want today in this day and age because of technology and guys like you and me being able to get out there and have a conversation whose voices would never, ever be heard. You know, if it was just mainstream financial media were our outlets, I think there's more and more people informed about what's going on and alert. It's harder to manipulate the optics but you do have to avail yourself of what's going on. So residential real estate, I think, is going to get a lot of attention from the government, protect the the resident level, forbearance agreements. You know, last time in 2008, when everybody started to default, the banks were dragging their feet and nobody wanted to take the hit. They were all afraid. Today, there's been so many changes made the way they banks report, you know, from mark to market to, you know, like I talked about the activity in the repo market and the Fed overtly, we've got your back. We'll buy anything that you have, you know, so you can stay solvent means that the banks are uh, and the government are stepping in right away with forbearance, anti-eviction, providing paycheck subsidies, subsidizing loan servicers, propping up everybody in the food chain from Main Street to Wall Street. So I think that even though it's scary and you have to pay attention, there's going to be disruptions, but you also, to a large degree, have the wind at your back when it comes to residential real estate because people always need a place to live. Politicians and industry and bankers all are highly motivated to prop it up. I don't ever know exactly what that's going to look like. Or to your point earlier, they don't always hit what they're aiming at. But you can be assured that you've got a lot of folks on your side if you're in that space. So it remains one of my favorite in this environment. But again, you got to look at the specific deal, the specific market, specific management team, the specific financing structure against the backdrop of your own specific financial situation and how much risk you can bear. I do think that there's going to be some bargains available in the next many months and years. So it's a good time to be you know, aggregating capital and building your team and building your knowledge, uh, whether you're going to be a hands-on direct investor or you're going to look at properties and cut your own deals or work through your team, or if you're going to be a passive investor buying into portfolios that private syndicators put together, which is kind of like buying a mutual fund of properties, but you're not buying through Wall Street. Uh, You're just buying through private individuals. And we have a lot of people in our world that do that. We think it's one of the great business opportunities in all of business, but especially in real estate right now. 
Russ, what's your litmus test for making a decision? Because we have an opinion, we have a bias, we try to gain you know a lot of insight and information to reinforce that. But of course, everyone has their blind spots. Feasibly, the Fed could continue to print and around the world, we can get back on track. And so you look at that being another perspective and bias. But then also when it comes to what you had said, which I agree with, and I've been thinking a lot about, which is the, the shift in employment. Businesses are learning how to work remotely. And they really were forced into it. But are, I would say, experiencing a lot of success, some success from what I've heard. And that is going to put in you know, jeopardy potential local markets, especially when they're not climate friendly, when you have maybe some harsh seasons, or you can potentially move to a nicer climate. So with all that being said, there's so many different variables that could lead to potential opportunities. Is there a litmus test that you use to identify an opportunity and then subsequently do due diligence in a specific way to ensure that what's being pitched to you okay, is in fact as much truth as, you know, as possible? Because I think they're going to have their truth to sell you the deal. But to have enough truth in there, enough details, facts for you to make a, a wise decision. Yeah, I don't know if I have a litmus test. I have a methodology. So Robert and I, Robert's the host of the Real Estate Guys radio show. We teach a lot together. We've invested quite a bit together over the years. And our, you know, our basic approach is number one is you need to develop your own personal investment philosophy. You have to figure out what it is you are trying to accomplish, what you're willing to do and not willing to do in order to get there. And that's done based on your life experience. It's done based on looking at other people who've had success and failure. I learned a lot. I actually learned a lot more through my 2008 failures and all my successes leading up to that. So uh, it's really interesting because I, I forgot. I mentioned my one question of Donald Trump, at, but I had a chance to interview him the first time in Iowa before he was candidate. And I asked him that exact question. I said, Mr. Trump, you've seen good times and bad times. What did you learn in the good times? What did you learn in the bad times? And if you decide to run for president, how will that help you? He didn't answer the last part of the question. But the first mm -hmm. part of the question, he goes, well, I didn't really learn anything in the good times. That's what he said. I didn't learn anything in the good times. But in the bad times, I learned it's always good to have a little cash. And so, you know, obviously, I took that to the bank, literally, because it is important to always make sure that you have a little cash. So anyway, you come up with your personal investment philosophy. Am I looking to grow my capital? Am I looking to preserve my capital? Am I looking for the production of income? Am I looking for tax breaks? Am I looking for privacy? Am I looking for lifestyle? There's a way to invest in real estate for lifestyle. You can buy properties that you'd be happy to live in and vacation in and rent them out when you're not using them. There's a lot of ways to approach the game of real estate. So that's number one. Number two is whether you want to be hands-on or hands-off. And I think that's an important decision to make. And then regardless of how you choose to do that, once you've kind of got it figured out economically, you're looking for marketplaces, geographic marketplaces, first of all, and then product niches, and then demographics. When I say the word market, I don't just mean geographies. I mean product niches and demographies also. In other words, people. For example, if you believe in the baby boomer generation and you're like, the baby boomer generation has been an economic driver for all kinds of industries as they've gone through the cycles of life, well, that begs the big question, well, what cycle of life are they in right now? Healthcare. So we have a friend, a mutual friend who teaches people how to create residential assisted living facilities, nursing homes, if you will, but not big ones, little ones in homes. And if you followed what's been going on in the news... All the big homes are coming under attack and they were being told it's safer because of this virus to be in smaller homes. That's it. If you're investing in the big boxes, that's a loser. If you're investing in the small ones, that's a winner. So again, winners and losers always. So there's a lot of people look at the millennial generation and say, oh my gosh, the millennial generation is even bigger than the baby boomers. I want to invest to cater to that generation. Of course, they have challenges with student debt and jobs and things like that. But if you focus on affordable housing, a certain lifestyle type housing that appeals to millennials, so you kind of get the idea, right? So you're going to kind of figure out your market. You want to figure out a geography where you are going to have good economic drivers, more than one. Back when shale oil fracking and all that was the rage before we overproduced and oil prices crashed. And of course, it was really not an oversupply. It was really a collapse of demand because of the shutdown. But be that as it may, markets that are primarily dependent upon oil and oil production as the oil price crashed, 
they didn't have another leg to stand on. They were kind of a one-legged stool like up in North Dakota and the Bakken and places like that. So, you know, we never got involved in those markets because they weren't diverse enough for us. You look at the market next. Then you look at the team. And if you're investing for the production of income over a period of time in a market, then the most important person on your team is your property manager. That's the person who's responsible for producing the income and whose income, if the compensation structure is correct, is directly indexed to the performance of the property. Now you have aligned interest. You don't have a broker who's just trying to sell you a hyped up, glossy pitch deck and get you to buy and they move on with their fat commission and you're left holding the bag. But I really like to work with the property manager. So I, once I pick the niche and the marketplace, I work with property managers to try to figure out who am I going to hire to manage the properties. And I ask them what markets and specific neighborhoods I should be in. And I actually have them help me find the property. Right Now I'm getting someone and then... Because I can always find a broker to represent me. And a lot of times they'll have relationships. But I think property managers, you know, there's a lot of talk about unsung heroes or frontline heroes in different industries. After 9-11, it was the first responders and the coronavirus, it's the healthcare workers. Well, in real estate, it's a property manager. The property manager is the unsung hero. And so you focus on that. So that's really the approach. And then the financing approach right now in today's environment, could interest rates go lower? Yeah, they could. But I don't think they can go much lower. So locking in long-term financing is probably a smart move. If you borrow long and cheap to control an asset that is likely to be the beneficiary of inflation, we may get a little deflation to start with. It may drop before it goes up. But I think the long-term history, based on what the economy is built on and the way it's operating and the people are pulling the levers, what they're doing. Like the book says, equity happens. Over time, prices are going to go up. And if you fix in that dollar debt for the long haul, the spread between what it's worth in dollars, nominally worth, not in utility, it's still going to be a three-bedroom, two-bath. Nothing's going to change in terms of how useful it is. But it could go from fifty dollars to $500,000. And if you bought that with a $40,000 mortgage, the inflation actually makes the debt atrophy, makes it go away. And so people don't realize that when it comes to a potentially inflationary environment, the safest, best investment you could make is leveraged real estate because you acquire cheap long-term debt fixed. You secure the rental in to service debt, tax breaks to mitigate the thin cash, especially with today's tax code and the bonus depreciation. And you only have a fraction of your own money, maybe 20, 30%, which means you could endure a lot of deflation before you actually take a hit as long as you don't lose the property. I mean, even if you bought a property for $100,000 today and 30 years from now, it was only worth 50. If you put $20,000 down and the tenant paid off the mortgage, at the end of the day, you still own a $50,000 house in 30 years. You're up in dollar terms. But more importantly... In any environment, at whatever price point, a home that's paid for that's generating rent is a valuable real asset. And so real estate works in this environment, but you do need to be careful in your market selection and especially in your team selection and your financing structure. It'd be interesting if the philosophy of three bed, two bath goes to three bed, two bath in a home office. That maybe is a point for another conversation. Well, there's a lot of opportunity right now in that regard. Just like you could make the argument in some neighborhoods, uh, there's a lot of opportunity in one-story houses because boomers can't climb stairs. So Mm -hmm. again, this is just you getting to really understand how your customer uses a property and what they need from it and then giving them what they need. And to your point, Patrick, from internet connectivity to workspace or workout space. I mean, I live alone and I have a five-bedroom house, but I have a studio in one room, an office in another room, a bedroom in another room. Uh, I have a den or a reading room. And then I have a guest bedroom because I have family that comes to stay with me. And, And then I have a big loft area where I have a gym. I can live really a lot of my life and productivity right in my own home, it doesn't feel like it's an excessively big house for a guy living by himself, but there's a lot of things going on in it. So I think there's going to be maybe more demand for folks to have more space, which is a trend that is 
shifting, I think, a little bit from where we were headed prior to the coronavirus. Yeah. I mean, all real estate is, is really appeasing a demand and demands, tastes, preferences, they're always changing. So keeping a pulse on that, I think is important. But one thing I wanted to to pick your brain on and have you talk about is, you know, going back to 2008, 2009, and I, I'm assuming that some people that are listening now, right, there are properties that they do own, may not be able to weather this storm. And even though there may be some liquidity in the bank account of of the individual, of the investor, how do you approach maybe vacancy? And how do you approach when you decide to either supplement the mortgage with your income or with liquidity, or maybe the property is it's time to let it go. Like going back to 2008, 2009, I'm assuming very similar decisions are going to be made now. What would you have done differently if you were to go back during that period? And what would you recommend based on that experience to those that are going to potentially face that in the future? Well, I think... First of all, you always want to make sure you have adequate liquidity. I had none. I was 100% dependent upon healthy credit markets across everything. I brokered debt to generate income. So when credit markets collapsed, I had nothing to sell. I operated my business on my credit lines. And so when those credit lines got shut off through no fault of my own, just thanks limiting their risk in a collapsing credit environment, all of a sudden I lost operating capital. And that limited my ability to shift the focus of my business and develop new income streams. On a personal level, I had a lot of credit card debt. I was carrying a lot of debt because I felt like paying it off. I had higher yielding uses of capital, putting it into business, putting it into properties. And so it all penciled on paper. So I think that businesses do a thing called a SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. I think every prudent investor should do that. It's one of the things that I learned and would have done, wished I would have done, is really looked at everything I was doing and done a SWOT analysis. It would have helped me see the things that I had to work with so that when the stuff hit the fan, instead of you know being in panic mode, and Blair Singer says, when emotions run high, intelligence runs low. But when you're panicked, your brain freezes. And I could not see all of the resources I had available still. All I could think about is what I didn't have and what was going wrong. And by the time I woke up out of the fog, some of my assets had actually atrophied or been completely lost. So I wasn't able to react, not because I didn't have things to work with, but I didn't have the mental capacity and the emotional strength or the right advisory team to help me see it. So strengths. Weaknesses, I think obviously you always want to be aware of your weaknesses and you want to be aware of your your individual weaknesses as a person, your weaknesses in your personal financials in your portfolio. If you have your own business and your business, if you have a job, that alone is a weakness because you don't have control. One of the most resilient things you can do is at the very least create some type of a side hustle, but probably really give some serious consideration in figuring out how to start a business that you own and control or more than one. And that is a whole art into itself. So be very, very aware of your weaknesses. Of course, you want to do that for each and every property on an individual basis. And again, you're going to look at the market, you're going to look at the team, you're going to look at the demographic you serve, you're going to look at the financial structure and ask yourself, is this a strong property? Is it a a marginal property? Or is it a dangerous property? And then, you know, you obviously want to clear the dead wood and you want to probably in a market like this, jettison your marginal properties and then reinforce your stronger properties because better to only maintain 20 or 30% of your portfolio than try to hold on to 100% of it and lose 100% of it. And so that was one of the other things I did. I tried valuing to hold on like a lot of stock traders do. I traded stocks for a little while and really study stock trading and I don't advocate it as a way to make money or to moving, certainly. But it's great for really understanding investor emotions and experiencing investor emotions. Because when you are winning, and I had 37 straight consecutive winning trades, at the 38th trade, I could not take the loss. I could not admit that I made a bad trade. And so I wrote it all the way down to the bottom. I lost way more money than I should have. And it was simply because of my own pride and unwillingness. As long as I don't sell, I haven't taken the hit. Robert calls this zero-sum thinking. When you look at your portfolio, any portfolio, whatever you're doing, you say, if I didn't already own this, would I buy it now? If not, then why are you keeping it? And so you know, sometimes you are holding a position because you say, well, it's going to come back. 
Well, the shortest path to coming back might be a different property, a different market, maybe a completely different investment or investment strategy. So you got to keep an open mind to using what the market will give you. So strengths and weaknesses, that transitions, of course, into opportunities. Opportunities are a combination of what the market is giving you and what you have to work with. That's how you do strategy. You know, it's like what what's available to me, both that I have control over and things that are available to me that I can go get in the marketplace. And then threats. Threats are, you know, things that are directly glaring up. So I have, again, a process, you know, when threats rear their ugly head, the first step is triage. I've got to stop the bleeding. Nothing matters. It's urgent. So first priority is anything having to do with survival. And then the next thing is rehab, which means I got to kind of patch things up and get a stable base. I can't get stronger until I just reinforced what's going on. So I got a property, say, for example, that's bleeding out. I've got negative cash flow. I've got tenancy issues. They're trashing the property. I got a big, big problem. Well, I got to go in and step in right away and I got to get the problem tenant out. I've got to patch up the property right away and secure it to make sure that I don't have squatters or anything going on. And then I got to go do rehab, which is how did my property manager let this happen? And I got to replace that property manager. Now I can get to phase three, which is strength and conditioning. Now, obviously, if you're strong, just like with this coronavirus, if you've already been paying attention to your immune system and your nutrition and your health and your sanity protocols and whatnot, you're a lot less at risk than a person who hasn't paid attention to any of those things whose lifestyle is just inviting of health issues. And so I hope a lot of people will be cleaning up you know, both their financial areas as they go through this, as I certainly did after 2008. But they're also going to clean up their health issues. Right? We're learning a lot of lessons. But anyway, so that's one of the things that I certainly would have done differently and am doing differently today. It's interesting, the relationship between opportunity and emotion. And in many respects, there's a kind of an inverse relationship where you know, the, the, most, the biggest opportunities come from when you know, there's the greatest amount of fear and the most amount of euphoria or excitement is when you know, there's the least amount of opportunities. It's kind of an interesting relationship. So I would look at just kind of unpacking one of the things that you said, which is during that period of time, there's going to be an emotional reaction. And oftentimes, emotion makes leads to bad decisions. And increasing information, education, as well as perspective, I think is what you said, will help mitigate poor decisions. And I think it goes both ways because maybe those that have liquidity going into you know, this downturn, and there are going to be opportunities that present themselves. And it could be a retail strip mall that is, they're trying to sell for 10 cents in the dollar. Because it's 10 cents on the dollar doesn't mean that you should invest in it. Right. So I think there's going to be, you know, obviously opportunities when it comes to making good decisions with current investments that may go sideways now, but also opportunities to, pass on a deal, even though on the surface, it may seem like a really good deal based on principles and variables of the past. Do you also see that potential coming where I saw a lot of people make really good decisions in 2010, 2011, an incredible time to buy, but I also saw a lot of bad decisions. Yeah. Well, if you study failure, which I think you need to, then you begin to understand how those things happen. Nobody sets out to fail. I certainly didn't, right? Nobody necessarily constructs a life to be weak and vulnerable, but yet people do. They do it all the time. They don't take care of themselves. They don't take care of their finances. They don't take care of their relationships. They don't take care of their business. They don't take care of their property. The list goes on and on and on, right? But I'm guessing the type of person who's listened this far into a program like this is probably not in that camp. They're investing time pay attention to what's going on. You know, the two investor emotions are greed and fear. And if you're driven by either one, a greedy person will charge in and they will see nothing but sunshine. They will go after the opportunity with reckless abandon. And I think that's the operative word, reckless abandon. And then end up, you know, getting in over their head and having a problem. A fearful person will sit on the sideline waiting for everything for the smoke to clear. Conservative people tend to be that way. And I think in some ways, that's a greater danger because it's easy if you get in over your head to find people who can help you. It's scary, but you can find people that can help you. There's a lot of fixers out there. And a lot of times the problems that you're having seem overwhelming to you. 
because of your lack of experience or access to resources. Whereas an experienced investor would come in and go, oh, yeah, we can handle that. Remember the first time I was having a financial meltdown and my dad came and he looked over all my finances and he'd already gone broke in the 1987 stock market crash. And he says, oh, Russ, you still have a lot to work with. Well, it was just a perspective. I couldn't see it. I was just hitting the panic button because that stock trading trade I did was a big one and I got it all wrong. And I thought I was going to have to sell my house. I mean, I was just like freaked out. When you are in over your head, you can get help. The challenge about when you're sitting on the sideline in isolation, and there's a lot of that going on right now, waiting for the smoke to clear is there's nobody available to help you. There's nothing to fix except what's going on between your ears. You won't know that you've made a mistake until you go out and you can't buy anything that's worth buying because all of the buyers have already done what they do. Because here's what's going on. The way a bottom gets put in a market is the brave and the bold, the aware and prepared, the experienced and equipped, the people that have the right teams. They step into the market and they begin to go bargain shopping. And the act of snapping up those bargains brings the very stability that you're waiting for. But by definition, it means all the bargains are picked over by the time you get there. So Warren Buffett famously said, sell, buy when there's blood in the streets. You're not being a vulture. You're being a white corpuscle. The problem exists with or without you. You're not capitalizing or victimizing someone. You're often solving a problem because people who are selling are selling because they don't want or can't handle the property for whatever reason. Could be mental, could be emotional, could be relational, could be financial. Doesn't really matter what it is. It's their problem. Their problem becomes your opportunity. And, you know, and again, some people are wired that way. This is not as easy. You can't sit in your crib with your trading app and just order up real estate, even though people are building online marketplaces. One of the biggest mistakes people make is taking a look at a property on an online portal, having never met the market, not knowing anything about the team, buying it because the numbers make sense based on some YouTube video they watched on how to do a financial analysis. And then they buy it. And then they go looking for a property manager. And then they start trying to understand the market that they bought in. And they do everything backwards. Remember, I talked about it starts with personal investment philosophy, market, team, property. A lot of people start with the property and then figure out the rest. But the problem is by the time they get the personal investment philosophy, they're there because it's been so painful. Mm -hmm. They've discovered all the things they don't like and can't stand. And sadly, a lot of people will walk away from real estate. I have to confess, after 2008, I was a little sour. Here I am, I'm a real estate guy. I wrote a book, you know, Equity Happens and how great real estate is. And I went and reread the book afterward to make sure that we weren't pitching snake oil, but it's still penciled after the fact. My problem wasn't what we wrote, it's what I did. Knowing what to do and doing it, right? There's a lot of people who aren't at their ideal weight. Well, it's not because they don't know what to do. It's because they just, for whatever reason, aren't doing it. Well, it was the same thing with me. I knew what to do. I just, for whatever reason, wasn't doing it. And that largely had to do with split focus and arrogance and thinking that I could just make more money in business than managing my, my properties. Anyway, I just think that you know the mistake is to sit on the sidelines. Now is the time. Commend everybody who's made it this far into this monologue or this you know epic discussion. Wow. Mm -hmm. And I think it's good. But I think that now is the time to be investing in your education. It is time to be getting investing in your network and getting plugged into people who are already doing the thing that you want to be doing. There are clubs, there are mentoring programs you can join. None of those things should cost you money. They should make you money. You might have to front a little bit of money till you get up to speed and get going. But there are investments like any professional education. The intent is that you're going to make money. But this is a relationship business. And then once you're plugged in and you kind of have your finances in order and you've worked through your investment philosophy and you've got your team in place and you're starting to understand markets and product types and all that stuff, your relationships are going to be the people that are going to get you into deals. If you're going to be active, you're going to need a little bit more education and a little bit different kind of education. If you're going to be passive, then you really need to understand what it is to be a passive investor. You need to start looking at some offering documents and understand how to understand the risks you know, and they're all in the prospectuses. A lot of people buy stocks and they get handed prospectuses and you and I both know nobody ever reads them, but they should. When you get a private placement, a real estate syndication, for example, 
uh, you're going to get handled subscription agreement. And part of that in the subscription agreement in your offering documents, your private placement memorandum is going to be a very sobering explanation of all of the potential risks. But remember, you're not looking for a reason not to do the deal. You're looking for reasons to do the deal, but you want to go in your eyes wide open. Sam Zell is one of the most iconic real estate investors ever, much bigger than Donald Trump, by the way, and not a controversial figure, (laughs) at least not in the same way Mr. Trump is. So Sam Zell wrote in his book, Am I Being Too Subtle?, that the thing he attributed his success to was not his ability to see the upside. He goes, everybody sees the upside. It was my ability to see the downside and still move forward. And I think right now, the marketplace is showing everybody a lot of downside. Your ability, my ability to be successful isn't going to be to sit on the sideline and wait for things to stabilize. It's going to be to see the opportunity and the risks and find a way forward. And you're going to do that through education and other people. So don't just camp out on the internet while you're sheltering in place. Try to find ways to join virtual or God forbid, you know, uh, risk your health and go out and get in some real world conversations and get together with some folks and get connected. It's a fun community. If you get into the right tribe, you know, we, we build those. I know, Patrick, you put on events. You've been at many of our events. You know the kind of people we attract and what we do. We're not giving up on the event side of our business or getting people together. You know, we're taking a time out and we're doing more virtual stuff. But the concept of tribe is super important. So that's the season we're at right now, I think. There's a lot more to learn. Uh, But you got to pay attention. This is a slow motion train wreck. Doesn't mean you have to be run over by it or injured by it, but you definitely need to know it's happening because when the collision occurs, there's going to be parts and pieces and things flying all over the place. And you just want to make sure that you're not in the path. Probably a few treasure chests are going to crack open and you can go bargain hunting too. So that's part of the reason we like to pay attention. Well, your mission, your mission statement is, is, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's education for effective action. Yep. And, and you look at you know, the environment in which we operate in, just to you know, summarize what we've been talking about, it's an environment that we really can't control. There's a lot of things that are going to happen, but ultimately we can control what we do, our action. And I look at something I learned recently, but kind of understood, but didn't necessarily implement there's no such thing as a perfect deal. And past a certain point, trying to get more information and have more, this has to fit, this detail has to fit, only increases the benefit marginally. And so it really comes down to having more pros than cons, but then also having multiple perspectives, which I think is really a good benefit from having a tribe, having a network, and having different perspectives in this information age. And so let's maybe end with that, Russ. How do you balance your perspective? Because you're in the thick of real estate. I mean, it's you guys, I think, have the longest running uh, podcast radio show focused on real estate investment of anyone. And you know, you have a certain perspective that has been added to by multiple perspectives. Who do you continually follow and pay attention to that helps you have maybe a different perspective, a supplementing perspective? that you know, helps you grow and learn and be more clear about what's happening so that you can take effective action? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm a student first. I have a huge library and I read every day. I budget an hour every morning you know, from 5 to 6 a.m. to read and do that when I have an uncluttered mind and enjoying my coffee gives me an excuse not to have to get up and get going. So that's part of it. I listen to podcasts many of the people that I've become friends with because I find people different mechanisms or books or podcasts and then we seek them out. Uh, We leverage the fact that we have this show, as you do, to talk to people. We both host and participate in mastermind groups on various topics, both business and investing. You know, We do our annual investor summit. We've been doing it now. This will be the 18th year. Normally, we do it on a cruise ship. We're not sure that's going to happen this year. We're still cautiously optimistic, but it's really uncertain. We're supposed to be leaving in three weeks, and I don't know. We're going to see. But somehow, some way, we will get together. And so, you know, this morning, I was on a call with a mutual friend, Richard Duncan, who wrote the book, The Dollar Crisis. And we were talking about life from his perspective. In about 45 minutes, I'm going to be on the phone with Brian London, who's a gold expert and runs a New Orleans investment conference, a very plugged in guy. Obviously, I'm sitting here talking to you and you have a perspective. I mentioned Chris and Adam. I've done webinars for them. 
we do some joint stuff together. And so they have a way of looking at the world. So I think, again, it goes back to using what you have, whatever you have. It could be just the ability to write a check and, and pay to be part of a club. It could be if you have a show or some outlet where you can talk to people if you have time to read. Most of us have something we can work with. You try to find a way to put good ideas in your head and then try to get into conversations with other people that are interested in the subject matter as well. Even if it's the blind leading the blind, just concentrate on what the author or the podcast or the video host is saying and talk about it and process it. That's a way to learn. If you can get somebody who's got some professional expertise or real-world experience, whether it's a CPA, an attorney, a 1031 tax-deferred exchange guy, somebody that does infinite banking or mortgages or whatever, bring them into the conversation, whether those are conference calls, Zoom calls. Eventually, you, you could start your own investment club. We did a white paper. You send an email to club at realestateguysradio.com. You know, we've been putting together investment clubs for a long time. We'll send you a white paper, free white paper. You can just look at it and figure out how to start your own investment club. Just some tips and tricks from guys that have done it on how you can start one on the cheap and grow it and have it be successful and begin to attract people into your world. The point is, do what you can do. I have a saying, my dedication is to be diligent about doing the things that I can do so that I am best prepared to handle the things that I can't control. In other words, be diligent to, to control the things you can control so that you are in the best position to react to the things that you cannot control. There's so many things that you cannot control. There are only a few things that you can control. The good news is if you focus on them, you can control things like the ideas you put in your head, the people you hang around with, your self-talk, your emotions. You Obviously, what happens on your balance sheet and in your physical body and in your environment, you can control all those things. And then those things will help you react better when there's a coronavirus crisis, an economic shutdown, a financial market collapse, a banking crisis. The list goes on and on and it'll never end. This is not the last crisis, uh, certainly not the first crisis. So it's just going to continue to happen. It's part of being alive going from crisis to crisis to crisis to crisis. So don't withdraw, lean in. There is opportunity on the flip side and actually going through uh, all these problems. Your mission is to try to figure out which opportunities are for you, who you need on your team, what you have to work with to make it happen, and then never to put all your eggs in one basket, but to take reasonable risks that you're, where you're aware of the threats and you have a mitigation strategy so that if we have a fire, I know to run out this window or this door. If somebody breaks in the house, I know where the phone is and how to call 911 or maybe where the weapon is or however you choose to defend your home. I mean, just have a plan A. Everything goes great. Have a plan B in case certain things go wrong. Try to anticipate as much as you can. And uh, to your earlier comment, Patrick, understand there will always be an unexpected event that nobody saw coming that you couldn't plan for. And the best you can do is have some liquidity, have a great tribe, have some stability in your financials. You know, Especially, I'd be avoiding counterparty risk right now. It's one of the things that I'd be very concerned about. And then that way, you, know, you may lose a piece of your portfolio, but you don't lose the whole thing. Be ready for inflation. Be ready for deflation. Be ready for a banking collapse. Be ready for hyperinflation. Be ready for high taxes. Be ready for high interest rates. None of those things may happen. All of them may happen. We don't know. But something's going to happen. And so just think it through and kind of be ready and, and have people on tap that you can tap into when you're not sure what to think. And if you make those investments now, then I think your future is bright, come what may. And I encourage you to do that. That's what I'm doing. It's what all my friends and folks like Patrick are doing. It's just, I think that's the name of the game right now. Well, Russ, this has been incredible. There's been so much we've covered. Thank you for your time again. And it, we will post essentially all the different links, ways to contact you guys, how to get access to your newsletter. We'll post this in the specific medium that you accessed it. So Russ, thank you so much again. It's always amazing talking to you. And I definitely learned a lot. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. I'll make it easy for everybody and make it easy for you if you want, Patrick. They can just send an email to Wealth Standard at realestateguysradio.com. And it, you just get a quick autoresponder with the latest copy of our newsletter and links to everything that we do if you're interested. If not, then just unsubscribe and no harm, no foul. 
All right, Russ, thank you again. We'll have to do a, a follow-up as things unfold. I look forward to it. Hey, everyone, this is Patrick. Thank you for listening to my interview with Russ Gray. I had a great time. Russ is an amazing guy. And hopefully you can follow the Real Estate Guys radio program. It's, a, it's an incredible podcast. They have awesome guests on. They're very insightful in the way in which they analyze things. So I think you guys will get so much value out of following them. And Russ also writes his, uh, his newsletter, which is also incredibly insightful, somewhat comedic, and like I said, very informative. And I believe you get a ton of value from it. Plus, it doesn't cost anything. I said in the beginning, I was going to do some commentary at the end. I ended up doing some commentary and answering a bunch of questions that were asked on social media, mainly on YouTube. It ended up being like 25 minutes long. So instead of including it in this episode, I'm going to put a link to a video in the show notes for those of you who want to go on there and uh, listen to questions that I answer and comments uh, regarding you know some of the inquiries and things that have been posted on social media. So go head over to thewealthstandard.com, check out the show notes, and there'll be a, a link on there to a separate video that has that commentary. Okay, that's it for now. Guys, thank you so much for the support and hope to see you on the next episode. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.